What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Hey, hi, hello, Hardwood Knox listeners. I am Dan Pavelli coming at you without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. I am, however, too, I am super pleased, however, excuse me, to be joined by good friend, longtime colleague, Bleacher Reports National NBA columnist, Grant Hughes. Follow him on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. As I say all the time, he does not tweet often, but when he does, it is gold. Before we get started, we have what I, I thought would be a fun pod for us to do today. I uh, just want to shout out our sponsors that make this podcast possible. Uh, that would be betonline.ag and Blue Chew. You will be hearing from them momentarily, so to help us out, you can use those promo codes. Another quick housekeeping note, the historical decade player ranking pods that Adam Frommel and I are doing. We will get back to them next week, but uh, he told me in advance he was going to be busy this week, and we have nothing but time. So we're going to we're going to get through those team by team. Don't you worry, the Detroit Pistons fans. We have not forgotten about you. Grant, how are you doing? Just living that quarantine life. Got a home haircut. Feeling good. Not looking good, but doesn't matter, right? Scale of 1 to 10, relative to the circumstances, how did your wife do with the do-it-yourself haircut? Okay, so yeah, I, I, I undersold it. So the, I paid her this compliment, and this is the highest compliment you can pay to a home haircut, which is that unless you were looking very closely, I'm not sure you'd know that a, a, uh, a civilian administered the haircut. So, so that's, that's, that's the praise I can give it. Uh, I feel pretty good about it, but I will also say that hats are a larger part of my wardrobe than they once were. But overall, my, my happiness level is high. Did you ask for one to 10? If it's one to 10, I'd give it an eight. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you if you phrase it to her exactly that way, she'll probably want to renew your vows right on the spot. Just I mean, I pretty much did. So, <laughs> although I didn't say eight, maybe I should have given the number. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, no. I listen. One of the things you want to look for in a life partner, uh, haircut skills. You because you never know, right? Look where we are today. You got to you got to think about these things. That's something for me to keep in mind for my next marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. To be yep. to, no, my wife has offered to cut my because I complain about it. I'm on day as we record the 69 of not having a haircut, and it's very not nice. I look like a fucking porcupine uh, just because <laughs> of the way I normally style my hair, and it grows out on the sides, not down. So I'm really just. If you thought I was ugly before, like I'm ugly AF right now, mm-hmm. and she's offered to cut it, and I'm just like. You're not going to do a good job. Like, let's not go. Th- I don't want to be mad at you. Like, let's not go through this. And she's like, yeah, I kind of know, but you're bitching so much that I feel like I need to offer. Yeah, you're going to have to give in. I think you'll realize it's just at some point the the equity you earn by entrusting and empowering her to do this is worth is worth whatever level of bad the haircut is. Yeah, I think once I get to like week 10 i think i'm at my breaking point now like 10 weeks is a long time who goes 10 weeks without a haircut even when you're trying to grow your hair out Mm, the lopez twins all right fair enough uh we do have actual (laughs) basketball to talk about not because there is actual basketball happening but uh we came up with a concept where we want to imagine nba players who are basically sidekicks maybe their number three options at this point that we want to see in a number one role or it'd be cool to see in a number one role. Yes, maybe they're best suited in their current role, but it would just be cool to see them take on more responsibility as the primary guy for their team. We're not saying they need to be traded. This is not a, a trade pod. Uh, it could be on their current team. We're not, again, we're not even saying it should happen. It's just a fascinating case study. And I think before this season, a few of the players that might have sprung to mind immediately would have been Bradley Beal, Pascal Siakam, uh, Draymond Green. 
I don't want to see Draymond Green be more of a primary ball handler ever again without <laughs> Stephen Curry on the floor. I will tell you that right now. Uh, but now we've seen that from Beal with Wall out. We've seen that with Pascal Siakam just taking on more offensive responsibility uh, without Kawhi Leonard there, though I think you could still argue there might be another level for him to get to since he does have Kyle Lowry and, and Fred Van Fleet. But that's the type of players that we're looking for. And so we each have names written down. We're going to go back and forth and just cross them off as we go. So Grant, Without further ado, who is the first player that you selected? Well, I do have some further ado before I get there, Um, (laughs) which is, uh, so when we were uh, texting about this, um, I sort of like, I I sort of took the approach you did, but also it it seemed to me like implicit in the question was kind of, um, you know, what players do we think, and these are often second options, like you said, are maybe being helped or hurt by their like system or their situation, but we're not sure because we can't just like you know pluck them out and put them on another team and see what would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so guys that like for me, if there are a lot of guys that's like yeah you know he's number two. What would it look like if he were a top option? But it's also just guys that like I just kind of want to know what their current situation or how it's affecting the way that they play, and that might mean they're better or worse somewhere else. But I kind of just want to find out. Um, so my first guy is sort of probably in the mold of what more like you were thinking of, which is uh, CJ McCollum. And, you know, I, I, I think everybody acknowledges uh, he's just like he's he's a really good high usage, you know, get your own buckets type of guy. Um, but, you know, there's in addition to sort of a duplication of resources in Portland, I think he's always one of those guys that gets brought up in a let's break up this group type of thing because, I think there is a sense that if he had his own team the whole time, he might do okay um, or, or better than that. Um, but but we're just not sure, really. And so what what's interesting to me about him with Portland is that, you know, he is in the 88th, 88th percentile or above among guards in usage rate. So that's with Dame Lillard. Like he, you know, he gets his touches. And he's a little bit above average from an efficiency perspective for his position. I'm just using cleaning the glass for this. Um, so there might not be more there, but um, I'm interested to see if if he were put in a position where he had to be more of a facilitator, um, if he was someone that like you really entrusted to run pick and roll all the time and you know just had a higher leverage, higher usage position like what that would look like. Um, and, and he's an interesting guy cause he does so much mid range scoring and he's such a weird, has such a weird kind of crafty in between thing. He might be a guy that like is a floor raiser, but doesn't, you know, ever get you to, you know, serious competitive levels if he's your top guy. But, but he's someone that I'd be interested to see what that would look like outside of Portland. Yeah, and I'd agree with you. He was on my list too, and they've, I think, staggered them, uh, him from Lillard a little bit more. And yeah. definitely this season, I'm not sure about last season. I can't remember, but the returns have not been great. Uh, since over the past five seasons, in fact, the the best Portland's offense has been with C.J. McCollum on the floor without Damian Lillard is the 38th percentile in 2015-2016. And so that could speak to a lack of depth on the Blazers. There are a lot of things that go into that. And I tend to think that if you put CJ McComb in that primary role, he, he would be closer to a floor raiser than say like a Zach Levine, where he feels more like a, like a floor preserver where he's just not going to elevate you at all. He doesn't make his teammates around him, him better. And so I, I would be more interested to see that. And in part, it does seem like his game sort of clicks or becomes more valuable in the playoffs because you're talking about all the in-between stuff that he could do. He's never really, though, been saddled or needed to, I guess, be more of a playmaker. And so I guess that would be the big question mark. That's also why, for people who think that the Blazers should just trade C.J. McCollum, break up that backcourt, maybe get a wing in there, just a different type of player, it really just can't happen unless you know, you're packaging other stuff with him if you're looking to make an upgrade, or then you're looking to just completely restructure the team. Because I don't think anyone's trading for C.J. McCollum and wants to see him as their number one because it feels like there would be limitations there. I would still like to see it, though. It feels like he has a would have a better chance of succeeding than some of the other guys who have a larger influence or just more playmaking responsibility within their offense. Yeah, I think, I think his approval rating to me, like among fans, which sort of informally seems really high, like everybody kind of likes him. Um, but I think that might change for the worse if he was, say, 
you know, really high volume, less efficient, not playing a lot of defense, lead guard on another team. So I think, as will be the case with several of these, um, we can sort of fantasize about what it might be like if he were elsewhere. But it sort of feels to me like he's actually in like the best place he could be right now, other than unless like, you know, if Portland had like a, a point guard that, you know, could just lock up whoever the tougher backcourt matchup was. But mm-hmm. all, all things considered, he's in a pretty good spot, I think. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners, with currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Since I had TJ McComb as well, my next one is a healthy Clay Thompson. We've seen mm. just what Draymond Green can look like uh, around fewer superstars, and I know he didn't really give a damn this year, but it still just wasn't pretty. Yeah. For me, with Clay Thompson, I feel like he's become underappreciated, and maybe it's because Golden State has had so much star power. Maybe it's because the defensive splits are so bizarre, but. We know what he can do defensively. He's one of the best on-ball defenders in the NBA. And there is more to his game than just being able to fire up off the catch super quickly. Uh, I He has a little bit of a post game. I think he can put his head down and get buckets from scratch. You've seen him hit these pull-up jumpers off, off the dribble before. I don't know if he has necessarily another playmaking level. Maybe that would be the big problem. But could you maybe see him influencing an offense on a Devin Booker level? Or is that too ambitious for someone like him well so that's that's the question a hundred percent that is the question is what is what does he do if he's got the ball a little more basically and you know famously whatever is can score 60 points with four dribbles or whatever it is um so like few guys have the ball less than he does but there is there are some like encouraging signs you know i was looking at his pick and roll uh efficiency as a ball handler and over the last four years, he's never used more than 7.2% of his offensive possessions as a pick-and-roll ball handler. So these are all incredibly small sample sizes. But 18-19, he was in the 98th percentile in, in scoring efficiency as a pick-and-roll ball handler. 17-18, he was really bad. But the two prior years, 16-17 and 15-16, he was in like the top 25%. So um, the threat of his shot means that you know, if you're defending a pick and roll, even in the mid range, those really rare, weird ones, which actually he runs more of than than most guys, you can't leave him. Um, you have to stay glued, and he's gotten really good at that little pocket bounce pass. It's it, it, the reads that he can make are not, you know, he's not the guy that is going to swing it to the opposite corner over the heads of three defenders who are taking one step in the wrong direction. He's not like that kind of facilitator, but he would be serviceable, I think. As as a guy that you know, primarily you want being Reggie Miller, just sprinting all over, or late Ray Allen, running everywhere, tying the defense in knots, and just catching and shooting. But I think he does have a little bit more um, in terms of ball handling stuff. I don't know if the overall package would be more valuable than what he's doing now, but um, I think there is definitely evidence that he could be something more than he's been uh, through. Obviously, what's been a ridiculously good career to this point. Yeah, and they've accounted, uh, ISOs have accounted for so little of his offense that this probably isn't even worth mentioning, but over the past four years, he's only ranked below average in ISO efficiency once. And so maybe there is just a little bit more to plumb there. I will say, are you at all, or do you maybe, maybe do you attribute it to just the circumstances under which this season took place? Are you at all surprised at how bad Draymond Green was this year? I mean, I, I, so I guess I was always, when Draymond was like at his peak, I was always one of those guys that pushed back on the he's a he's a product of the system. I mean, obviously that's true to some extent for him, maybe more so than most players. But to me, when he was at his best, like where does his defense not fit? Right? Like mm-hmm. where does a guy who can defend five positions and pass and you know grab and go off of defensive rebound and make the right play? Where does that not fit? I mean, that fits anywhere. Any team would want that. But I think this year he was totally checked out. 
um, which I get. Um, and he, you know, is also the type of player that's undersized and you lose the quarter step for him. And it's just a devastating, you know, uh, deterioration in his effectiveness because he just doesn't have the athleticism to spare. So I think a lot of that contributed to how bad he looked, but I also am leaning more now towards like, there's really no question that for him to be not honestly like exploitable by the other team, he needs Steph Curry and Clay Thompson out there because there's just, the shooting is just such a problem. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's, it was a revelatory year, I think, in a lot of ways for him. <laughs> That's probably a good way to put it. Uh, who else? Who did you have after that? So we've gone through Clay Thompson and CJ McComb. Was Clay on yeah. your list, by the way? Uh, he was, and and I sort of I flipped it a little bit, um, just real quick. Um, so Andrew Wiggins um, is someone that this is the opposite of the question, right? Because now he's going from a bigger role to a smaller one with the Warriors, and I'm curious what that might look like. And you know, he was basically the same guy on the wolves and the warriors this past year which is to say like about as good as he's ever been which is also to say not really that great <laughs> um so i'm curious about that um but but yeah so for my next guy i'm interested in jamal murray just like as a Ooh. uh just in general um like so stagnated growth wise this year sort of had the same season over again which is a little discouraging but he's still so young that you know i'm not I think it's insane to start thinking a guy that young has leveled off. Um, but so playing with Jokic is just such a such its own strange thing. Um, and I would be curious to see what he could do with more of a playmaking responsibility, um, which the Nuggets just never gave him. He like So it's not just Jokic. Murray played 261 possessions this past year without Jokic or Morris. And so that's like nothing. Right. Um, so the Nuggets clearly don't it, trust is too strong of a. They, they're not really interested in finding out what Jamal Murray facilitator looks like right now. Um, but I think he's got another couple levels to go overall. I think he has the size you want in a combo guard. I think his shot is just so projectably gonna be better. Um, and then I think the next phase is can he be like your real high high end secondary playmaker? Um, or if we move him somewhere, what's it look like when Jamal Murray is running your offense? Um, we don't know that yet. Um, but I, I'm kind of optimistic, which I feel like is almost a contrarian play after the somewhat disappointing year he's had to this point. Right. So he did not make my list, and I would probably take the more pessimistic view on him. Yeah. Uh, part of that, I might just be colored by Denver giving him the no-brainer five-year max. You didn't well, that, yeah, that that's ridiculous at all. But he's been, you know, you mentioned he's been the same player like that he was last season. Essentially, if you look at his per 36 minute splits over the past three years, there's just not a lot of movement there. Mm -hmm. A little bump in playmaking. And yes, the Jokic factor is there. Uh, this year, though, the Nuggets were in the 46th percentile when he played without Jokic in general of offensive efficiency. And I actually think that's kind of impressive because if you look at those lineups, uh, I, what struck me was, one, how much he played with not only Monte Morris, but also Will Barton at the same time, where, okay, wow, Denver really might not trust him to handle the ball or playmake for people full-time. But also, within those lineups, like there weren't these terrific floor spacers around him. And so when you're dealing with that uh, yeah. problem, it's harder to have closer to an average offense. And so I would actually take that as an, more of an encouraging sign. I don't know if I'm in the camp of, hey, I want to see – you know, Jamal Murray get the type of opportunity that Bradley Beal has gotten in Washington, where it's what what happens if he is all of your offense and you're removing that primal playmaker at or removing that middleman, whatever you want to want to call him, and really giving him the reins. I would watch it. Like it's definitely something that's intriguing. But for some reason, he was not one of the players that immediately came to mind for me. So you mentioned Beal, which I feel like is kind of the 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 guy that has a lot to do with this this topic in general. Do you do you think that this was Beal's best year? I think it's tough to it. You look at the efficiency, and it wasn't. But at the same, and the defense too. He well, just didn't play defense. Yeah, and I, I don't really factor that in as much to the number one option status, just because you know James Harden exists, and so it's yeah. clear that. But my whole thing is when you look at the level of shot difficulty uh, on the attempts that he's taking just incredibly hard. And so the fact that he's hitting them at all, and then I, I really, for someone like him, when you look at the on-off offensive splits, where it's not just, oh, they're 
offensive rating declined by a zillion points. It's that they actually had, you know, an offense that ranks in the, when he was on the floor, it was like the 80th percentile or something. And that's with dog shit talent around him for the most part. You know, there were some guys that had pretty good years. As Smith was fine. Mo Wagner was pretty good when, when he was healthy, but you're just looking at that talent around him and, you know, 81st percentile since I just checked it when he's on the court offensively, 18th percentile when he's off. And so someone who can have that type of impact to me, I might argue that it's been his his best season. Maybe not individually, but with the impact, with the value that he clearly has to this team now, I, I think that the, the argument is there. Yeah, no, that's why I asked is I don't, I don't know the answer. I think, I think it is a question though, because you look back and just looking at 16-17, which was before he'd ever made an all-star game, and his scoring efficiency was, was as good as it ever got. His true shooting percentage was up over 60%. Um, which for a guy that was fairly high volume even then, um, pretty impressive. But but yeah, it's I think we learned that we learned something different this year, which is that if he's just the guy, your offense works. Um, which which I think probably means this was his best year. But but I don't know. It's 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 interesting. He's the perfect test case. It's just because rarely do you get a situation where a guy plays with a certain setup and certain teammates like one day and the next day it all changes with with John Wall getting hurt. Um, and I guess he, I'd say he succeeded. Is it, is it my turn or your turn for the next guy? I think it's mine, but I, I think I would agree with you with Beal. And I guess maybe the other case would be was last year his best season just because you still played a ton without Wall and you were just yeah. more efficient overall. He shot 54.8% on twos. I mean, the fact that he shot over 51% on twos this year, though, is kind of mind-blowing. It is, yeah. Not a lot of easy shots for him. Uh, my next guy I, th- I think is probably sort of an obvious one. I'd be a little bit surprised if he didn't make your list. But Chris Middleton. And mm. the... The narrative of the Bucks not having a second star, or even to me, the one that's been more complimentary is they don't have a conventional second star. Like, I'm out on it. Scant few takes to me have, have become more outdated than that one. Just because when you look at what Chris Middleton can do, to use those disclaimers feels really reductive. And so uh, the Bucks' offense is absolutely great when he plays without... Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and yeah, there's there's something about his game. It definitely stalls out before he gets to the rim, and a career-low 15% of his looks are coming at the rim this season, but that he can run pick-and-rolls, that you can have an above-average offense with him on the court, that he's proven he can hit those tough pull-up threes, that he's shown that um, he can score out of isos or, or really in the post. Um, and I know his iso efficiency this year, last time I checked it, it really wasn't great, but he's been fairly serviceable in the post if you're going to throw it there to him. I feel like, no. Can he be the best player on a championship team? Absolutely not. Could you put him in Bradley Beal's shoes and him have that type of impact around what you would call suboptimal talent? I really think that he could. And I might just be, you know, I don't even know influence too much by I'm going to use influence. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that during this podcast, just what he's done this year. I also think there's just a case to be made that he's been one of the 10 or 12 best players in the league in general this season. And almost playing next to Giannis Antetokounmpo does him a disservice because people think he's benefiting so much from that. And yes, he is, you know, he doesn't have to lead a team against a full lineup of opposing starters. I totally get that, but I think he's shown enough times in the regular season and a few times now during the postseason that his game translates really well and that he's good he's a good enough of a playmaker to uplift the the players around him and so I would actually love to see him in sort of a a number one role I don't want or maybe the better way to put it is I at least want to see him be accepted since I'm not someone who's going to be like break up the bucks I want to (laughs) see him be accepted as a viable number two that people can just admit you know what, he could be. Put him as a number two on a different championship team that doesn't have the best player in the league, and that's a number two that you want. He's a fascinating case. And actually, I, I feel bad that I didn't include him, but I, I as I was thinking about who I would add, um, I kind of decided that, and this is the wrong way to approach it, it's just impossible to know to, to know what influence the being on the Bucks and playing with Giannis really has, or to be, you know, it's, it's impossible to be sure what difference that makes. Um, and, and I, I, I'm receptive to kind of either side of that argument of, well, it makes life easy on him. He's never the top defensive priority, or it makes it hard on him because like you said, he's just perceived as this, you know, high end second option basically. 
Um, but I'm, as I'm as you're talking, I'm looking it up, and like the Bucks' offense was 116.8 points per hundred possessions with him on and Giannis off. Um, That's wild. Which is phenomenal, 94th percentile. Their just net rating because he's also you know he's a good defender. Their net rating is plus 8.1. This is cleaning the glass, so no garbage time involved, which is phenomenal. Um, and the other thing with with him is as you were talking, as you look it up, like. So he's been ridiculously efficient this year. Um, that's that's the main difference. Is he's taken his scoring efficiency to another level. But he his usage is like roughly the same every year since fifteen sixteen, which is before Giannis was you know capital G Giannis, and his scoring efficiency was really really good too. So it's not like uh, the rise of Giannis has just made everything so easy for him that you know he's got inflated stats or whatever he's it's such a he's a really good passer underrated passer um i just yeah i i think i i think i agree that you know there's i don't know how many a half dozen guys that you'd say put them as the best player on any team and it's a contender he's not that um but he's definitely i think the beal comparison is really interesting he might even be better than than Beal if he just had you know a not so good team and had to do everything I think the evidence is definitely there um based on not just this year but we got five years now of Chris Middleton being really freaking good right and so I, I looked this up too so over the past three seasons where his ISO frequency has fluctuated but in uh 2017 2018 when it accounted for about 10 percent of his offensive possessions 57th percentile of efficiency uh last season it, it accounted for almost 16% of his offense. He was in the 92nd percentile. And this year, it's a it's more than 12% of his offense, and he's in the 64th percentile. And those are just solid things. And then what I've all, almost done, too, is imagine, like, Jason Tatum, if he was the level of playmaker that Chris Middleton is. I think people would probably argue that Jason Tatum is the best player in the NBA at that point. I do think he probably does a little bit more defensively off the ball, and his game, even though maybe you want him to get to the rim more, it doesn't stall out that like Middleton's does like there's there's a clear concern there but when again when you can dribble into pull-ups over players when you're so efficient in the mid-range when you can work in the post uh, maybe it's just not as not as important to do that and so I would welcome seeing him as the number one for some type of stretch with the Bucks, or if he ends up with an, another team at some point I, the hope for Milwaukee obviously is that he doesn't but I would be fascinated to see maybe I end up being totally wrong but I could see him being one of those players that you know, similar to how it turns out Pascal Siakam didn't need Kawhi Leonard, I don't necessarily think that Chris Middleton needs Giannis Tentacumpo. To contend to win a championship, absolutely. To be yeah. the face of an efficient offense, I, I don't necessarily think that's true. You know what's interesting about him, too, and this this isn't the point of the exercise, but he's 6'8", so his, you know, twilight years are going to be Joe Johnson-esque, playing power forward, except with, you know, just a more well-rounded game than Johnson had and, and, and some defense. So he like his shelf life as a as a significant contributor is much longer than than for a lot of guys because he has the size to hold up against this, especially modern fours and he's going to have all, like all of his skills as they deteriorate will just continue to look good as he's guarded by bigger slower guys. So like factor that in too if you're thinking of him as a top option like he might he might last for a while at this like level of production. Um so so I don't know. Yes, we are all fans of Chris Middleton. I think we can agree on that one guys are you looking to last longer than the value of a new york knicks first round draft pick get the bluechew.com bluechew.com has the first ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level they've got the same active ingredients that are in viagra and cialis so you know they work and since they're chewable they work faster you can take them anytime day or night even on a full stomach Plus, you don't need to go to the doctor's office or spend time waiting in the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost, and once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E, Chew.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. Um, my next guy... I don't want to go too off the board. I had another guy that I sort of, it's a Wigan situation where I want to see the opposite, but, and that's, I'll just do it real quick. That's Zach Levine. I want to see Zach Levine play for like a Boston where 
he Ooh. is not allowed to do all the Zach Levine high usage stuff, and you just sort of trim like 20% of the fat off his game, and somehow since Boston gets everyone to do it, play defense, and what he looks like as a third option, he might be like the best third option in the league potentially. Uh, but that's a separate – Boston, by the way, is the new Spurs, I've decided, oh. which is – it used to be like, oh, what would the Spurs, you know, player development staff and they're ahead of the curve, you know, how they deploy guys and how they use talent. What would, what would this guy look like there? Now that's Boston. You know, they get Marcus Morris to play really well. They get washed Gordon Hayward to still contribute. Al Horford sucks after he leaves. Like, oh, Daniel Tice, <laughs> Tice is good now, right? Daniel Tice is a great defensive center. They just like they just make guys work. So I want to see Levine there. Um, my I next guy see Marcus is smart. Run his own team just for the memes that would ensue. <laughs> <laughs> that team, <laughs> I, I'm a little concerned about that team's uh, scoring, but uh, my so my next guy is Fred Van Vliet um, because I didn't put him. So you're you're more. I thought about him, but I didn't put him. So you're you're more courageous than I. I respect it. Well, or stupid. Um, so and and like, there's a decent chance we get to find out, right? Um, so we'll see what free agency does um, if he ends up sticking or not. I, if I'm Toronto, I'm pretty much keeping him. Um, I don't know. The Knicks are going to get give him stupid money. That's, uh, it'll be on yeah. the table. I don't know if he takes it, but the Knicks are going to offer him stupid money. Unless yeah, they trade well, for CP3. Excuse me. I forgot about that scenario. Yeah, we, do we have like a three-hour podcast to talk about that? Honestly, uh, could we just say, I if this had happened, I don't really think there's a way for the Knicks to preserve enough cap space. Well, well they could. They could use their cap space, then if they guarantee a certain amount of contracts. I worked through the scenario. I know it would be undersized. I would pay. Pretty good money to see a CP3 Fred Van Fleet backcourt. That's all I'm going to well, say. I mean, like defensively, you're giving up nothing. Th- those guys, it does the, the small guard thing is not a factor with those two. Um, so right there, you're set. I, I, yeah, I've, I'd love to see it. Never going to happen. They're not going to get either of those guys, I don't think. Um, but so the the case for Van Fleet's pretty straightforward as far as this this goes. I mean. You know, he, he sort of everybody realized after the playoffs last year, once he caught fire, that he could be sort of that type of player. Spark plug could defend ones and twos exceptionally well, deflects every pass that's within like a half mile of him um, and could get hot from three. All that stuff. This year, he was just like a really good point guard across the board. Um, huge leap as a facilitator. Um, six, I think six and a half assists a game. Not looking at it, but big jump from before. Um, the three point shooting is great. Again, he doesn't surrender anything defensively despite being small. Um, I, I could see him just being like a top 10 point guard in the league or being viewed that way. If he had his own team to run, um, it, again, it, I almost hope we don't find out cause I just like Toronto as it's composed right now with, you know, him and Siakam kind of being the core going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and OG and Anobi, obviously, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what he might look like. I think he really has the game to scale up. There's He hasn't really, and it's hard to see, you know, looking at the time he spent without Siakam and Lowry this season, it's sub 600 possessions, which is fairly yep. sizable, but not really enough. And uh, the Raptors offense in that time ranks in the 12th percentile. The issue with Toronto is, though, is that they just have limitations offensively from their supporting cast if you're not named Terrence Davis. And so <laughs> it's it's hard to really draw conclusions from that and Serge Ibaka of course um and then a lot of those minutes aren't coming with Marc Gasol because he hasn't been uh he hasn't been healthy this year and so when you are the primary option like you still need talent around you and so he really hasn't seen but the bench units that he's led in general without Kyle Lowry before Pascal Siakam took on all this ball handling responsibility I think those were a clear sign uh I remember the DeLon Wright Fred Van Fleet uh bench lineups they were just straight destroying people for basically yeah. like not so much last season before the trade, but definitely the season before. And so I'm with you. I, I don't necessarily, and I think I speak with all these players. Maybe there's a few where I'm like, this needs to happen. I don't necessarily want to see it because I like, you know, just Fred Van Fleet fleets fit in Toronto, just like the persona that he has and just how it seems like he's this mini Kyle Lowry on defense. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I do, I agree with you. I think, first of all, I think you can make the case that he was a fringe top 10 point guard this year. He was certainly top 15 for me. And so if you actually give him uh, the keys and make him the offensive engine, there there would be a pretty good chance to me that he delivers. Yeah, that's why I hesitated is because as I was trying to think, you know, off the cuff, well, where does where does he rank? It's like, it's like on a permanent basis, he's way up there. It's just, it's that's the whole point of this is, well, what does it mean that he gets a fair amount of time against second units, even though he's a regular starter? What does it mean that Siakam 
just suddenly is is a guy that you can just give the ball to all the time. Right. That he also has Lowry. It's all these variables make it hard to know. Um, I don't know. I, I he's just he just this is not great for a statistically driven argument, but he just is a type of player that I feel like is it has the competitiveness and has the sort of like middle finger to the world. Like I'm under I've been undersized forever. Um, he just he just has a ton of game. So yeah, again, I like him where he is because I think you couldn't ask for a much better spot. But but I just want to know what it looks like. This is one where I actually want to see it happen because I think for this player to reach his apex or to be the player that everyone thinks he can be right now he needs to get there Shea Gilgis Alexander for me Mm -hmm. and I think what we've really seen is that you know he might be one of the most underrated scorers in the NBA right now there's just like you know he has the nice in-between game um his his three-point clip is down this year but he's still above 35 percent while creating more of his own opportunities uh his rookie year under 10 percent of his made threes came off assists and then this year uh, that number is over 43%. And so there's been a clear jump there. He has like a little bit of change of pace to him and misdirection when he's uh, inside the arc. The question for me is I could see a scenario where he's just hitting um, off the dribble jumpers, hitting even more of his floaters at higher clips. And then his mid-range game, like I said, it's clearly there. The question for me is, will he ever be that type of facilitator? And there were too many fail safes in Los Angeles, even though there weren't stars, but you had... Gallo and Tobias Harris for a lot of the season. Lou Williams was there, of course. And now you go into Oklahoma City and you have Chris Paul, you have Dennis Schroeder, which, you know, maybe that's not saying much, even though Dennis Schroeder's having a really good year. It does seem like he's tilting more towards hybrid wing than combo guard. And I want to see, because I think inevitably maybe it gets to that point in OKC, particularly if they do end up trading Paul this summer, can he actually be that engine for in offense. And this year it was not pretty when he played without Chris Paul, uh, Oklahoma city's offense was in the 12th percentile. And a lot of those minutes are coming with most of those minutes are coming with shooter because they don't really play him at point guard. So I want to see him in a situation where, you know, maybe he doesn't have to be the point guard, but I want to see him be just the, the primary ball handler and see how that offense ends up faring. I think I think he's a fascinating f- figure for for all the reasons you suggested is like we're not even really sure what position he tops out at you know like because he's six six and he's not even twenty two yet so he should he'll he'll fill out um, and then he should be fine guarding you know all but the the biggest wings so point guard isn't necessarily you know a given for him going forward and his assist numbers are are underwhelming for sure um, for his position but but like. I would love to bet on a guy that is this young that just has he has like his level of craft and feel on those weird in between like he's into the lane there's a he's pinned a guy on his back he is there's a big in front of him and he just has this innate you know ability to whether it's wrong footing the guy or scooping this shot this way or spinning back this he just has all these little weird things that you can only really chalk up to feel and I don't know if that's coachable, and so that's just going to play, uh, how you know, however big he gets, or however he, however much he improves his his you know court vision and willingness to move the ball and all that stuff. So I think, in addition to wondering what he looks like running his offense, I just wonder what he looks like with some experience, because a guy that has so many like old man skills already, um, to me, only profiles as someone that's going to look a lot better as he hits, you know, mid twenties. So, so yeah, I like I like that pick a lot. I haven't seen he has like a pretty good feel to pick and roll, but I haven't seen like anything that makes me think he can be a, a like a much better passer, maybe make more complicated. And he's only a sophomore, so there's the caveat right. there. But I feel like I've seen it, and this is stupid. It sounds stupid because he's averaging more assists than Jason Tatum. But I feel like I've seen Jason Tatum make some more complicated reads whereas maybe just Shea Gilgis Alexander hasn't gotten enough of of those reps and it's not that I want to see it I just feel like he has to get there and yeah because I don't think he can necessarily exist as this hybrid wing if he wants to be the best player on a a really good team and so it's inevitably gonna happen so so let's just see it I'm actually chuckling trying to say this about Chucky right now because as we're recording Giannis's Twitter clearly got hacked like hacked hacked (laughs) he has I'm not gonna read some of them but He's tweeted just in succession, fuck Chris Middleton, I want to play with some actual shooters. 
<laughs> he tweeted, I'm going to the Warriors with prayer hands emojis. Uh, he tweeted at Stephen Curry. This is as X-rated as phenomenal. Like, well, look, someone's using their quarantine time well. Yeah, he tweeted Stephen Curry. I, what if it was real? I hope it's real. Wouldn't that be great? No, we have we have so much to talk about. There's no. He said, "Wait." He said to Stephen Curry, tagged him, said, "I I fucked your wife." So this is definitely not Giannis. <laughs> but this is like. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so well, say goodbye to Giannis on Twitter for a while. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. fuck King James. He tried to hire a hitman on me. Wow. Okay. Uh, but sorry, that's just why I was laughing and trying to get through that because I was seeing this just show up. What professional focus by you? I would never have held that together. <laughs> it is your turn though. Moving on. Okay. So you can mute and laugh all you want. And you want. <laughs> so this, I, I feel good about, uh, these, this, so I've lumped two guys together. Um, and I alluded to the Spurs earlier. So this DeJounte Murray and Derek White, um, I think we've reached a point now and I, we'll just think of them in tandem, even though they're pretty significantly different players, but similar-ish position, uh, et cetera. So I feel like the Spurs now are the opposite of what they used to be, where, you know, just you look at the guys that leave, like Davis Bertans is the obvious one, where it just seemed clear that San Antonio did not understand what it had and was just not willing to play in a way that maximized him. Um, And DeRozan being there and Aldridge being there are huge complicating factors, especially for for ball handlers and theoretically point slash combo guards like Murray and White, where like if your offense is significantly dump it into Aldridge or pick and pop Aldridge or DeRozan clears out and works his way to a mid range shot or DeRozan in the mid post, there's just not a lot of opportunity for guards to kind of spread their wings and take on larger roles and just sort of do traditional backcourt player stuff with those two guys on the team and in an organization that is starting to feel like it's a little bit strategically kind of behind the the curve. So Murray, obviously, we just know nothing about him because he had a DACL injury. He barely played as a rookie. Um, but I think as a, you know, a low usage guard now, I wonder if he could be a higher usage guy as his shot comes around. His defense is always going to play. Um, and White is somewhat similar. So I, I guess, I don't know, I'm kind of getting down on the Spurs, I guess, is what I'm realizing. Is is I just want to see what teams or what, what guys that are sort of quote-unquote stuck there look like when they get loose. And Murray's under contract now for, for like, what, three more years? I don't know if it even kicked in yet. It might be four um, so we may not find out, but but I think both of those guys are really interesting to think about uh, playing someplace else. I actually did have Dejounte Murray on mine, yeah. and so I'm with you. I don't know that he's he just turns the ball over so much in in transition, yeah. and when you are able to go under pick and rolls, I think defenses are more inclined to do that against him than Derek White at this point. Definitely an issue, but he actually made my list because I would I would love to see it. And you're also like maybe we're you know you say we're down on the Spurs, but we're also sort of kowtowing to like that Spurs mystique still, where it's well you know maybe they still do have a guy on the roster who's worth seeing alone. Demar Derozan needs to get out of there though. It's just yep. that's not anything against Demar Derozan who I'm not super high on, but he's I mean he's a pretty efficient scorer for for what he does, but it just doesn't work when you look at how limited Murray and White are as shooters. I know they they both shot. Um, threes and long twos in a fairly okay clip this year, but just the volume isn't there. And so that's what I'd be curious to see too in Murray's case as well is can he get shot volumes up if he's given a more more prominent role? And so he would definitely be someone for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think I'm cheating on this one because I have a I have one that I thought was like a little bit offbeat, but it's really in it's really not. It's just offbeat because of the team makeup right now. Uh, this one's sort of cheating. I'm not sure if it's legitimate, but Ben Simmons. Let's just see mm. what happens when you surround Ben Simmons by all shooters. And everyone says like there could be a Giannis type of effect. I don't think there would be just because Giannis is at least willing to take jumpers and like he has like a fallaway jumper to his game. It's not the most efficient shot in his arsenal. Ditto for the pull up three, but like Ben Simmons isn't even taking those. But I still want to see the returns when you look at offensively how the Sixers play over these past few years when Embiid isn't on the floor. It's not great. But I do think part of that's at least semi-related to how the Sixers have been built, particularly this year. So I just want to see him in a different type of, of situation. I, I I don't think the Sixers should trade Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid. That should be a last resort, and I don't think they're there yet. But I also really want to see Ben Simmons on a different team or just a different a different version of, of the Sixers. And that's not even to say that I want them to trade Joel Embiid, but 
just because of how great his vision is, if you give him legitimate four-out lineups around him. Because, yes, Embiid shoots threes, but he's not the most efficient three-point shooter. Al Horford was always pretty efficient relative to his position, but like he was working out of pick-and-pops, which the Sixers don't run. So I want to see just basically... Simmons doesn't necessarily have to be the center, but you need a center who can really hit and take threes out of a high... Uh, at a high, knock them down at a high clip out of these drive and, and flips. So... I want to see something like that, and I don't know if we'll ever get to see it, uh, and if it happens, will it happen in Philly? I, I honestly don't know, but he's someone who I'm curious to see how he would fare in that type of role, if only because would it make him maybe more of an aggressive scorer? Are we going to see him maybe rely on a floater a little bit more in that type of, of situation? Because we know he can kind of do a little bit of stuff in the post, and we just know as as much as defenses know where he's going to go, he can still get to the rim and finish at the rim really well. And so I think there's a better offensive player there I just don't think the personnel on the Sixers I do think that he and Joel Embiid can coexist I just feel like the rest of the team isn't really built to that capacity and even with that in mind I would still like to see the more extreme version where it's really just four out around Ben Simmons so indirectly I've been actually thinking a lot about the Sixers lately um and so I'll flip it I I think for sure Simmons is like one of the most interesting guys to think about in a different situation, whether that's a different Sixers set of Sixers teammates or playing somewhere else. But so I've been doing these redrafts for Bleacher Report over the last couple of weeks. And so you're sort of forced to think about like alternate po- possible histories, right? And so as I'm going through it, and obviously the Sixers had all these high picks because of the process, and I'm I'm getting into situations where instead of Simmons, they have Siakam, and Embiid, or they have Jason Tate, and they don't do Fultz. They go, so in a theoretically, you get a situation where you have Siakam, Jason Tatum, and Embiid. And then suddenly it's just like, how easy is this? How much easier is all of this? So to me, I think what's the, to flip it, what does Embiid look like without Simmons? Um, I agree that there's a possibility they can be a title winner together, but just it's so easy without Simmons because. Embiid this past season was one of the most dominant post players like we've ever seen in a year. He just absolutely destroyed everybody in a, in a points per possession basis from the post. So what's that look like if instead of Simmons being ignored, you have Siakam or Tatum or just pick your star wing that they had the draft assets to get um, instead of Simmons. And suddenly the Sixers are like, well, what, how do you defend this team? It's impossible. Um, so I think I, I would go the other way and say, what does Embiid look like with a normal set of, you know, second star and, and, you know, role players around him as opposed to Sim. Now you can look at the different on off splits and how they, how they play with and without each other. But I think to me, it's just like endlessly fascinating to imagine what a, what a Sixers look team looks like for a full season and playoffs with somebody sort of equally productive, but in a different way. Than to, to Simmons as, as, as Embiid's number two. Did I lose you? I was on mute. Excuse me. I was, <laughs> uh, so as of right now, not reimagining anything, do you think that Simmons is a top 20 player in the NBA? I'm so bad at this. I'll tell you that I I took Siakam over him in the redraft. Siakam went ahead of him. Um, So I don't know what that says. I don't know. I I think that's in that's that's a reasonable range. Um, He's definitely not top ten. Like I don't think there's any argument for that. Um, Twenty. Yeah, sure. Like he's in that range of of top twenty. Maybe if you consider the fit issues that he presents, he ought to be lower than that. but he's just so ridiculously productive and such a good defender that that maybe that's about right. Uh, who do you have anyone else written down? I got one more, um, and it's a short one, um, and it's it's it's. So here's here's the reason for it. I'll keep giving you backstories. Um, I read this. I read something by Joe Varden, who I think is with the Athletic, and they were it was because everyone's doing Last Dance content. He was talking with Kevin Love about the last Cavs season and what it felt like, and. Uh, it felt to me like Love was a retired guy that was like reminiscing about you know <laughs> the old days, and it he seemed like I don't know he had he had perspective on it and he seemed a little like wistful a little bit sad about it and it made me realize like Kevin Love is still good 
he's not, you know, maybe call him overrated, call out the defense, he can't guard, you know, whatever. But Kevin Love is still a very good basketball player who in theory should make other good basketball players better because he's just had the ability to pass uh, If where if you give him the ball, he can make a good decision and that just hasn't been part of what the Cavs have ever really asked him to do. So I want to see Kevin Love before he actually is a retired player on a good team where his skills actually matter and where defensively you can make up for him a little bit and just we forget that you know the Minnesota years were probably overrated because that team wasn't any good and he had these crazy numbers that you know resulted in congratulations you still didn't make the playoffs type stuff um but I I miss Kevin Love mattering um he's a flawed player but I think he would matter so much more and do and you know put together a bunch of good years that would make a difference if he were playing somewhere other than Cleveland yeah I could agree with that the thing with Kevin Love that's so tough is where would he just make sense at this right. point? And it's a lot of it is just because of the defense. And I also think even what he does offensively, yeah, he's still good, but it's not as anomalous as it was, you know, four or five years ago. It almost seems standard for someone in his position. I would say the passing probably is not. I'm just like, what team could you because he has to play center now. And so what team would have the defensive bandwidth to put him at center? And just n- nothing comes to mind. No. Well, I mean, what about Miami? What if, because you've got Autobio to just guard whoever you need defended, okay. regardless of position. Um, obviously, like the money, the, you say the defense, the money is what means he doesn't fit anywhere. Um, th- that's just like a non starter. But pretend that's not an issue. I think someone like that, to the extent there are players like Autobio, um, then, because then you, you know, Autobio doesn't have the stretch yet. Um, but love provides that. I think both the two of those as your front court passing tandem is like ridiculous. Yeah. You forget point. You don't need a point guard anymore. Um, so yeah, something like that, but obviously that's just, that's pie in the sky. Yeah. And I mean, even in, I know people have kind of been fascinated with Utah. I don't know that him and Gobert are, are the best, best fit, even though that love on offense, it works like it'd be fine. I'm just, yeah. Sure. Who's guarding fours on that team. Right. But that would be, I mean, if he could get that opportunity, or technically he could have it in Cleveland. They just have so many young, ball-dominant guards, and they might draft another one this year. So <laughs> if he's still there next season, like that, those touches just aren't going to be, or the usage just won't be as high as it probably could be. But a Kevin Love renaissance, I, I would Why not? watch it. Why not? My last guy, I'm wondering if we ever get there, Zion, where hmm. Andy Davis is a fantastic player. He's top seven in the NBA right now, probably around that range, maybe eight, whatever you want to say. But he's always been a play finisher and not someone who's going to lead the most efficient offense on his own for these long stretches. We've even seen it in Los Angeles when LeBron's off the court this season. He's always going to need another – he needs a playmaker around him to maximize what he does best. I'm wondering if Zion has what it takes to just be an exception. He has trucked people in the post this season. He hasn't really run – a ton of pick and roll. I would kind of like to see that because it feels like he has the passing IQ uh, to really do things going downhill if he's coming around screens. And then he's five of nine. This is such a small sample size, but he's five of nine on off the dribble jumpers. Is this someone that we could trust in low to modest volume to hit some shots on the move outside of the paint slash restricted area? I just want to see it, and I'm curious if we'll ever get there or if the Pelicans are always going to steer into the mindset of he's more of a play finisher and like his most frequent self-created looks are going to be those those putbacks, let's say. And they're, they're sort of ready-made to go that direction just because you have Drew Holiday right now, you have Brandon Ingram, you have Lonzo Ball. But I would love to, a couple of years down the line, maybe when we've seen if Zion's really able to, to broaden his offensive game, I really would love to see what someone like him would look in in that role. It's like a, what if Draymond Green could actually be more of a scorer? And it feels like Zion Williamson might have that 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 factor about him. Yeah, I think that so Zion is just a fundamentally complicated player to consider because, I mean, real we like we think we have an idea of sort of what he is, but we really don't even know yet what type of player he's going to initially become so that we can then start thinking about what type of player he might be elsewhere or with a, you know, a couple years of skill development. Like the, the slate is so blank right now. I mean, we you know, physically we know what we have. He's just overwhelming in every way 
uh, you know, size, speed, strength, jump over, jump through, all that stuff. Like he's unparalleled, I think, athletically. But what does that mean? Um, it seems like the logical way to go is, you know, if you're skeptical about his outside shot ever being a real threatening weapon, which I, I think I probably am, um, he does sort of have to have the ball because unless you've got this just brilliantly put together scheme where all he does is cut around and, and just, you know, constantly be sprinting in straight lines toward the hoop and guys find him. But it seems like he's going to have to show that he can do stuff with the ball because the, the alternative is he becomes just a knockdown floor spacer. And that seems far less likely to me. Yeah, that, that's what's tough is because I do think you need kind of that off-the-dribble jumper to do it, and I don't know that he ever gets there. And even if we get to a point where it's like Derek White style, you want to say, where he's going to need t- time to get off his jumper, even if players mm-hmm. are going under screens, I'm not sure functionally how valuable that would be. But just because he can truck people in the post for now, and he does seem like a good enough passer to where he could run pick and roll, if for some reason that jumper develops to... I'm not talking about in, in terms of actual deployment, but efficiency-wise, a Giannis Antetokounmpo jumper, like that's where it gets interesting. Because yes, yeah. Giannis is a below-average jump shooter, but he can still be the primary playmaker for an incredibly good offense. Yeah, you know, it's made me think in conjunction with watching all the Last Dance stuff. Like, if the rules were what they used to be, and Giannis, you know, the, the idea of him having to shoot threes to be optimally effective was just not a thing because he could post up anybody or you could throw it to him like in the Jordan range, you know, 10, 12 feet away. And you couldn't as easily have the second guy there. Same with Zion. Like those guys, I mean, to say Giannis would have better numbers, it's kind of insane, but it's actually possible that if, if he could just use all of his strengths and not have to worry about same with Zion, adding all this stuff, um, they could actually be even better, which is obviously ridiculous to think about. Do you have any honorable mentions you want to throw out there where it'd be like really long shots that we probably really don't want to see it, but could it technically happen? <laughs> one of the names that, if for me to start, one of the names that sprang to mind for me would be, would it force DeAndre Ayton to kind of expand his offensive arsenal if he was kind hmm. of the, the de facto number one? He's probably just looking at how smooth he can be in the post. I feel like you could get more face-up usage out of him and maybe not having a... Devin Booker on the court for so many possessions at a time, would that force him to kind of augment, strengthen, broaden, whatever you want to say, his offensive game? And it's not something that I necessarily want to see again, but I'd be curious if he'd be the type of player that that could maybe baptism by fire type deal. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the parallel that that kind of conjures up for me is, and actually this has some resemblance to like the Dame-CJ dynamic, is uh, Jalen Brown. Because he took such strides this year just across the board. Um, now it's the kind of the same thing where it's like, you know, Boston has obviously you would never get rid of two-way wings because that's just like a fireable offense now. So they're never going <laughs> to break those two up. But, um, we, you know, how much more does Jalen Brown have? That You know, because Tatum clearly is going to be the guy with the ball now. Um, but I would wonder, you know, a year from now if Brown is someone who starts to feel or maybe deserve, you know, top option status i think it's unlikely but that's the first guy that i thought of when when we were trying to think of guys that you know at least have a a possible trajectory of getting to a place where like they sort of warrant you know a a bigger role than they're going to be able to get it's just interesting with him because you look up and it's like oh jalen brown averaged over 20 points a game i just don't know that we've ever even seen hints of the passing that he would need to to shoulder that type of burden yeah no i think i think i think that's probably the way that it the reason that it wouldn't necessarily work but i don't know the way he 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 just improved so much i just remember him as a rookie like really all he tried to do was dunk on everyone and it rarely worked out and he was overrated as a defender and now he just has so much more just he's so so much more refined um without losing you know that kind of athletic aggression i just when a guy makes those sorts of developments um it's it's just so nice to see like an athletic project become a really good basketball player. And so then I start to think that anything's possible. But yeah, he, he probably should draw the line at um, the sort of intuitive passing stuff that you really would need to, to have a top option role. Well, Grant, this was fun. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. This is the first pod I think we've ever done that should clock in at under an hour with the two of us on it. Me well, saying we that talk- might prolong it. 
<laughs> yeah. Hey, you want to talk about most improved player? <laughs> let's just <laughs> knock out 90 more minutes. Yeah. Let's no, I, I, uh, we talked world. about efficiency throughout this pod. So I feel like it's appropriate that we knocked it out. Uh, probably not as efficient relative to other podcasts, but thank you so probably much not. for being generous with your time. I always love talking to you. Hope that you and your family are able to stay safe and that your, your haircut continues to be at least an eight out of 10, if not, maybe, maybe a nine. Follow Grant on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. Until next time, we leave you with a shout-out to Second Options. Shout-out to them. Shout-out to all the number twos doing work. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.